You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we have to spend time in your word. Your word is living and powerful. It's blessed, so we don't have to ask you to bless it. It is already blessed because it contains your word. And wherever your word is, there is power. We ask that you would be with us. Send us your spirit to understand spiritual things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody should have uh, the handout. Take notes, write questions. There should be um, on the back page a big page with lines for you to write questions. Um, this is a class, not a sermon. And uh, my church members know that most of my, my sermons are teachy, not preachy anyway. So you'll, you'll um, enjoy that, hopefully. All right, let's get right to our message. I am assuming that most of you here are Seventh-day Adventists, that you've been to a couple of our evangelistic meetings. You probably know who the Antichrist is. You probably know who the beast is, what his mark is, and all of that, which day the seventh day is. And I'm assuming that you have that information already into your brain, and so we're going to move forward from there. Okay? If any of you do not know that information, Feel free to ask me, and I'll give you a five-minute Bible study on all of that stuff, and you will be informed. Okay, if I was to ask you to take out a piece of paper, eight and a half by 11, and not write huge, how many could fill up everything they know on that whole piece of paper about the three angels' messages? You could? No, hey, don't. Hey, if you know it, put that hand up. Okay, how about a five by seven card? Okay, three and a half, three, three and a half by five? How about a post-it note? Okay, well, most of our people understand the three angels' messages within the confines of an evangelistic meeting. For instance, when is the last time you heard anybody preach about the three angels' messages, say, on Sabbath morning or a Sabbath afternoon seminar. Most people have, have heard the three angels' messages within the confines, say, of Mark Fenley evangelistic meeting. But when we go through the phrases of the three angels' message, not so much. That's why I put this together. Okay, After the first angel message does his work, or even her work, who knows, maybe angels look like women, I, I would assume so, so much. Um, some look like men, some look like women. Why not? Um, I would assume that after the first angel's mess does your work, the second angel comes, the third angel comes, and then what is the very next thing that happens in the book of Revelation? Turn to Revelation chapter 14. What chapter? 14. Revelation chapter 14. We're going to be in Revelation a lot here. Revelation chapter 14. By the way, if you have flash drives, bring them to me because I spent a year and a half of prayer meeting putting together a 62 presentation PowerPoint on the whole book of Revelation verse by verse. I will give it to you. Just bring me a flash drive and I'll, and I'll get you the hookup, okay? And I'll, I'll also give you my Bible studies so that you can give uh, Bible studies to people and prepare them for baptism. I'm not one of these guys that makes you buy my stuff. I give everything away. So, because it's not mine, it's all God's. Amen? Amen. Okay, what's the next thing that happens after the three angels do their work? Revelation 14, 14. I'd let you read, but i got to have everything come out the mic, so i got to be a preacher. All right, 
14, 14. Are we there? If I say 14, 14, I mean Revelation. Or if I say a verse, a chapter and a verse, I mean Revelation. I'll say anywhere else where I don't mean, or I'll say Isaiah or Exodus or whatever. But if I say a chapter and a verse, I mean Revelation. Okay? 14, 14. Are you there? If you're there, say, I hate COVID. All right. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. Who is that Son of Man? That's a quote taken from Daniel chapter 7. Okay? That's Jesus. Having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Come on in. Well, you can sit. There's a, there's folding chairs right there. Having on his, on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle, and another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the crowd, cloud, thrust your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. What is this a symbolic picture of? Okay, so the first, second, and third angel's messages do their thing, and then what is the very next thing John tells us happens after that's over? Second coming of Jesus. The three angels' messages are the equivalent of Noah's last sermon. The three angels' messages are the messages that God has given His people to preach, which brings about the second coming. Okay, Ellen White says, and I'm not going to Ellen White quote you to death here because I want you to know what we believe is from Scripture. Ellen White's wonderful. She's beautiful. I believe that she's as inspired as Moses. But if a Catholic or a Baptist asks you a question, you've got to know your Bible. Amen? So we're going to try to do everything from the Bible mostly. There are many precious truths contained in the Word of God, but it is what? Present truth that the flock needs now. I have seen the danger of the messengers running off from important points of present truth to dwell upon subjects that are not calculated to unite the flock and sanctify the soul. Satan will here take every possible advantage to injure the cause, but such subjects as the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus are perfectly calculated to explain the past, the present movement, and show what our present position is, establish the faith of the doubting, and give certainty to the glorious future. These I have frequently seen were the principal subjects on which the messengers or preachers should, should dwell. That's Early Writings, page 63. Now, where is that phrase, present truth, taken from? Does anybody know? Present truth. 2 Peter 1 and verse 12. 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1 and verse 12. This phrase might be new to you. If it's not, it's okay too. 2 Peter 1 and verse 12. Are you there? For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the what? The present truth. Okay. What does she say the present truth for our time is? We don't even have to guess. She just says it. The present truth for this time comprises the messages, the third angels succeeding the first and the second. So she says that the message for our time is the three angels' messages with an emphasis on the third. If that makes sense, say amen. Okay, so there has always been a present truth in each age of the church's time. For instance, what was the present truth in Adam and Eve's day? 
They were warned that there could be an angel who would come and deceive them. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge, only eat from the tree of life or the other trees. Just don't eat from that one. How easy was that, right? We take easy things and make them hard, don't we? Okay, present truth. Noah's time. What was the present truth during Noah's day? Build a boat, get in it, right? Let's fast forward. Um, present truth during, come on in. We have, we have chairs back here. What was the present truth during the days of Jesus? Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament Messianic prophecies and he is the Messiah. And then we move forward to today. The present truth is the three angels' messages. Unfortunately, Satan tries to get the people to be one behind or one forward. In Christ's day, they had Jesus as king, but they should have known because of Daniel chapter 2 that the rock struck the feet, not the legs. They were living in the days of the legs of iron, and the rock did not strike the legs of iron, it struck the feet. And that is a biblical reason why Jesus should not have been an earthly king. Amen? All right. So Satan had the Jewish nation believing that Jesus was supposed to be earthly king, but his role when he was here was what? Sacrifice. Okay? So the present truth for his time was Jesus as sacrifice. When he comes back, then Jesus as king. Present truth for Christ's present ministry is Jesus as high priest. There you go. See? All right. Let's go to the first angel's message itself now. What is the setting of the three angels' messages in the book of Revelation? Can somebody tell me what the context of Revelation 12 is? Who can tell me what Revelation 12 is about? It's the four scenes of the great controversy where Satan always loses and Jesus always wins, right? It's the hinge of the book of Revelation from the historical half to the end time half of, of Revelation. So 1 through 11 is historical, 12 is the hinge, 13 through 22 is the end time part, or if you want to know the big eight cylinder word, eschatological. Eschaton is last things. Okay, now what happens in chapter 13? Who can tell me what happens in chapter 13? Okay, Satan sets up a counterfeit Christ, anti-Christ, in the place of, in the office of Christ. He establishes a new law which overthrows the government of God, which puts his, his counterfeit Christ as, as the position of Jesus, which is why we call him Antichrist. All the world marvels and follows after this beast. And then in chapter 14, it says, fear God. When it says fear God, it's assuming that the world is fearing somebody else or else there will be no reason to say fear God, right? And when it says worship him who made, it's assuming that the world is worshiping someone other than him who made. Which is why God has given the first angel to reset the world to what they should be believing, teaching, and practicing. If that makes sense, say amen. All right, we're learning. This is good stuff. So what the purpose then of the three angels' messages is to tell the world not to worship the beast, but to worship Jesus. Not to worship the image of the beast. See, Satan tries to play God. He breathed life into the breath, and he breathed breath into the image of the beast. The only power that Satan does not have, one of the only powers that Satan does not have that God is, has is that he cannot create. And so in Genesis 2, verse 6, it says, let, um, that's, two, that's 126, and the Lord God, no, that's 126, 2, verse 7 says, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, 
and man became a living soul. Satan mimics Genesis 2 verse 7 in Revelation 13 when he says he breathes breath into the image of the beast. Okay? So he's mimicking the creative power of God by making the world worship the image of the beast. And of course, the image of the beast is when the papacy joins up with America and forces the whole world to worship the image. Okay? So what is happening is the beast is doing his thing. Satan is very active in chapter 13, and he's forcing the whole world to follow him either by, well, you actually believe what the beast teaches. And when I say the beast, you all know who I'm talking about. So I don't have to come out and say it. If you don't ask me afterwards, and I'll tell you. So the beast is doing his thing, and then in chapter 14, God is reacting to what the beast does in chapter 13 by saying, don't worship the beast, worship him who made. Don't give the beast glory, give God glory. So God is reacting in chapter 14 to what the beast does in chapter 14, 13. Does that make sense? All right. Let's actually read the first angel's message together. Go to 14, verse 6. Chapter 14 and verse 6. And when you get there, say first angel. Man, you guys are fast. Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel, which supposes that there was other angels before this one, flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a... Okay, this is one of my favorite phrases in Revelation. The Greek phrase is megasphone. Which English word do you suppose we get from megasphone? Megaphone, right? Megaphone, saying with a megaphone, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Come on in if you want to come in. Here's chairs. Have we used them all? Okay, good. So there's a lot going on here in just two short verses. A way that I like to study the Bible is to read the text and notice what seems to pop out at me. So when I read the first angel, I see that there are three angels the everlasting gospel is being preached. Those who dwell upon the earth, fear God, give Him glory, hour of His judgment, and worship Him who made. Now, we're going to spend today and tomorrow going through the first, and then we'll, we'll go through each angel as we, move, as we move forward. Let's go through these together. What are these three angels? Are they literal angels flying in a literal heaven? You all know that most of uh, what Revelation is made up of is largely symbolic imagery of literal things. For instance, if I said, the dragon, who is the dragon? So the devil is not a dragon. Is Jesus literally a lamb? No, but those are symbols of, of, of realistic um, entities. So what are these three angels? The Greek word for angel is agolos or angelos. Okay? And notice at the bottom where it says, by implication, a pastor, angel, or what? Messenger. So take your pen or pencil, or someone else's pen and pencil, and write down Matthew 11 and verse 10. There it calls John the Baptist a messenger, and the Greek word is angel or angelos. So in the, in the New Testament sometimes, and in the Old Testament in the Septuagint version, which is the LXX or the Greek Old Testament, you have angel, people being called angels in the sense of being a messenger. The messengers who were sent to John, sent to Jesus in prison, in Luke 7, 
um, were asking if Jesus was the one or should he look for another. Those were, those were angeloses or messengers. The spies who visited Jericho and the LXX, James, uh, James 2, not, not the LXX, James 2.25, same word, angelos. The high priest, Malachi 2 verse 7, messenger. Um, Jesus as the messenger of the covenant, Malachi 3 verse 1. So there is five biblical examples where an angel can be a person as a messenger. Okay? Does that make sense? So what we're seeing here is these three messengers, these three angels, are not literal angels flying in literal heaven. God has not given the gospel to be preached by angels. Although angels are involved, and sometimes they do materialize as people and help out with salvation of, of many, but God has called His people to preach, right? Matthew 28, verse 19. This is the text that I always show somebody when they say, Pastor, that's not my spiritual gift. You are the Bible teacher, not me. Well, let's read the Bible. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore. And the reason why you go therefore is because the text before says all authority has been given. So you teach because authority is in Jesus, not in you. But somebody said amen. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples. Notice it did not say make church members who just come to church and pay and pray and sing and go home. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus really only preached two sermons. He said, come here and then go there. Come to me, now go to others. And so the three angels' messages are basically pictures of God's end-time people carrying the most important message that has ever been committed to human history right before the second coming of Christ as His people teaching the truth of God's Word. Amen? Now, let's go to the everlasting gospel part. Luke 4.18 the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the what? The Gospel. Other versions of the Bible, such as the ESV or the NASV, which are versions that are closer to the Greek and the Hebrew than, than most, have the word good news because the word gospel is evangelion. It simply means good news. Gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Anybody brokenhearted? Anybody oppressed? Jesus come to set you free today. Okay? So here's another. Matthew 24, 14. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. You're going to understand the everlasting gospel a little bit better once we get to tomorrow's presentation, because... Tomorrow's presentation will help unlock what the everlasting gospel is. It is simply more than just the message of Jesus dying on the cross for sin. It's more than that. And you'll see that as we go along. So here is the prediction of Matthew 24, 14, the gospel going to all the world. We just read Revelation 14, 6. How many, how, how many places in the world does the three angels' messages reach? So that's the prediction and the three angels' messages are fulfilled by you, God's people, and, and the last days. So the prediction is Matthew 24, 14. The fulfillment is found in Revelation chapter 14. Gospel predicted that it goes to the whole world. Revelation 14, gospel does go to the whole world. Make sense? All right, now, I already said all that. Okay, everlasting gospel. 
hanging on the, hanging on the cross, Christ was the gospel. He was the good news. Now we have a message. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Will not our church members keep their eyes fixed on a crucified and risen Savior in whom their hopes of eternal life are all centered? This is our message, our argument, our doctrine, our warning to the impenitent, our encouragement for the sorrowing, the hope of every believer. Okay? So a lot of times some church members fix their mind on an aspect of what people believe, but she said our main message is Jesus. Jesus to the whole world, okay? We will define a little better exactly what the everlasting gospel is as we go on in the, in the presentation. Next, this phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, Revelation uses this phrase, John uses this phrase eight times. How many times? Eight times. 310, this is all on your notes. 310, 610, 1110, 13, 14, 14, 6, and 17, 8. Every last time, this phrase is used in the book of Revelation. It is always talking about the wicked. What is it talking about? The wicked. Every You'll have a chance to look those verses up later. Every time this phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, is used, it is always talking about the wicked. So Jesus said, that makes sense, because Jesus said in Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Right? This phrase is contrasted with its usage of only one time. Go to 13, verse 6. 13, verse 6. So there's those who dwell upon the earth. In other words, Jesus said, be in the world, but not of the world. These people who are of the world are dwelling on the earth. They're not living for heaven. This world is their home. They're not passing through. They are here because their mind is stayed on planet earth and the things of this world. Now, Revelation 13, verse 6. Are you there? Then he opened his mouth to blaspheme against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell where? In heaven. So this is the only time this phrase, those who dwell in heaven, is used in the book of Revelation because it's contrasting those who dwell in heaven, those who are in the world but not of the world, with those who are living here because this is their home. Make sense? All right, so far so good. So every time this phrase is used, it's still, so pick up what God's laying down here. The everlasting gospel goes to those who dwell upon the earth, right? So the gospel is reaching out to the wicked, and some of them are being changed, okay? So now move forward to the phrase, fear God. What does it mean to fear God? I'm halfway through my presentation, so I'm going to slow down a little bit. Got my David Asherick shoes on here. What does it mean? What does it mean to fear God? Yeah, I'm a little excited. When I get excited, I talk fast. What does it mean to fear God? Luke 19, Leviticus 19:3 says, "Ye shall fear every man his mother." Now, some people may have literally been afraid of their mother but that's not what the text is talking about, and his father. And then it says, keep my Sabbath, I am the Lord. Now, I, I, I don't get into this, you know, this version is the best version, and, you know, which Bible version is the one that is to be read. And um, I, I just say, look, pick one that you understand and go for it. Because if you make the King James Version the only version, and if it's not King James, it ain't right, then you must make the entire world learn English in order to have the Bible. 
So all the people in the, the jungles of Africa must learn English in order to have the Scriptures. So that just kind of falls apart with that one concept. If you like the King James, great, love it. It's probably the easiest version of the Scriptures to memorize from because it's, the language is so poetic. But if you look up this, 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 ver this verse in uh, the ESV and the e in New King James, which is my favorite, the New King James, it's revere. So it switches fear for revere. And then in the NASB, it's reverence. And then the NIV, respect. These are my the first. I don't really do much with the NIV. Um, not that I don't like it. I just, I just like the, these three versions the best. And, you know, a lot of people get hung up on, well, I don't have this degree from Andrews, or I didn't go to Amazing Facts or Mission College or Emmanuel or whatever. You know what? If you have these four versions, these four versions, and I'm assuming almost all of you have computers, you look up a text in these four versions, you know the Greek and the Hebrew. That's it. These four versions. ESV, New King James, NASB, New King James, or King James, NIV. Okay? Those are your versions. You'll, you'll understand the Greek and Hebrew if you read those four versions. NIV says respect instead of fear. So you can see how other translators have supplied that word. Fear with revere, reverence, and respect. The Hebrew word is Yahweh. It means all of these things. Fear, reverence, respect, love. So to fear God in the Bible means a couple different things. It means to take Him seriously, and sometimes it literally means to be afraid of Him. But it's typically because you have done um, something really wrong for a long time, and you are about to get paddled. Okay? But for the most time... When you see fear, it means reverence, respect, love, reverence. Fearing God denotes being in a right relationship with Him. Job 1 verse 8 says, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who what? Fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answers the Lord, and said, does Job fear God for nothing? You've given him incentive to love you. He's given, he's given you all these things, right? God has given Job all this stuff. And so, this isn't a seminar on Job, but you see the point here? It's used as love, okay? Here's another. Fearing God also denotes a surrender to His will. In Genesis uh, 22, and we're going to talk about Genesis 22 on Wednesday when we discuss the second angel, Genesis 22, verse 12, And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad, that lad was Isaac, or do anything to him, for now I know that you, what? Fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham at last surrendered everything to God, and he was in a position where he was fearing God. So in this text, fearing God means completely surrendering to his will. So in the context of the first angel, it means that God's people are preaching the gospel. The gospel goes out to those who dwell upon the earth or the wicked, and people are stopping fearing whatever it was that they used to fear or love or reverence or respect. And now, instead of fearing their cars, their jobs, their wife, their kids, money, respect, whatever, or their RV, right? I'm trying to contextualize for camp meeting. They now are fearing God. The everlasting gospel reaches them. They used to fear whatever they feared or loved, but now they're fearing God instead because they have been converted. Okay? 
Now we're starting to understand what, a little bit more of what the everlasting gospel is, is about. So fearing God is the result of hearing the gospel. Whereas before they used to fear the world, now they meet Jesus, and as a result, they fear God before they used to fear whatever else that they did. This leads us to our next point. Fearing God gives way to giving God glory. Fearing God and giving Him glory go right together in the Scriptures. Revelation 15 and verse 4, Who shall not fear you and glorify your name? So in Revelation, you have this phrase, Fear God, give Him glory. It's, it's used elsewhere other than Revelation 14. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? This is a rhetorical question because the people who, this is in the, the context of the uh, seven last plagues, right? Revelation 15 and 16 are setting up for the seven last plagues. It is assuming that they're fearing Babylon and the beast, okay? So who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Okay, so this concept we're fearing God and giving Him glory goes together. Um, 11, you can write this down. 11.13 and 15.4 has the same verbiage together. Paul says we glorify God when we value ourselves as He does. What is the glory of God? What is the glory of God? 1 Corinthians 6.19, I heard someone say character. We're going to get there, don't worry. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirits, which are God's. Here's another. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whatsoever you eat or drink, do all the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all the glory of God. So those are some ways that you can give glory to God. But how do we understand what glory is in the context of the first angel's message. Exodus 33 gives us a good answer. Exodus 33, Moses says, God, I would like you to show me your glory. God says, okay, let's see how this goes. Exodus 33, 18. And he said, please show me your what? Your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord. So glory and goodness and name are all important in this, in this text. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And you flip over to verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Verse 21. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be that while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall, you shall see my back, but my face will not be seen. We wait for heaven for that. Then we flip over to chapter 34 and verse 1. So God says, I'll show you my glory, my name, and my goodness. Watch what happens. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. You being Moses being the symbol of his people who were worshiping the golden calf. Okay, verse 4. 
So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai. And as the Lord commanded him, he took the what? Two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the what? He proclaimed the name of the Lord. So he says, show me my goodness. I'll make all your glory pass. He says, show me your glory. I'll make all my goodness. I'll proclaim your name. And what did he give him? Two tablets of stone. What was on that? The morning news? No, it was the Ten Commandments, right? Okay, now verse 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving... Now watch this. This is a really neat... I'll, I'll go on a little tangent right here. When you study the doctrine of sin, there are three levels of sin. Okay, Sin is sin, but there's three different levels. Iniquity, notice he starts with iniquity because that's what they were doing when they were worshiping the golden calf. They were exchanging worshiping God for worshiping an idol. And the reason why they worshiped a golden calf is because one of the main gods of Egypt was Apis the bull, and so therefore worshiping a calf was something that they were familiar with. That is why they chose a calf. Okay, So in the worship of the Egyptian culture, they worshiped many gods, but one of their main gods was a bull. Okay, That's why they chose a calf. Keeping mercy for thousands, so they were in absolute rebellion. And in the text earlier in Exodus says they ate and drank and rose up to play. And that rose up to play has sexual connotations along with it. So there was some serious stuff going on there at the, at the worship of the golden calf. Yeah. So we'll move on from that because you get the point. So he starts with iniquity and then transgression. And Psalms 51 said, David said, take away my transgression because he wasn't in open rebellion against God. He just made a mistake. He saw a pretty girl. One thing led to another. Next thing you know, Uriah is dead. And then Nathan's talking to him. That's transgression. Sin of passion. And then there's transgression, and then what? Sin. Sin is an archery term. You're aiming at the bullseye, and you miss it. Okay? It's harmatia. It means to miss the mark. It supposes that A, there is a bullseye, and B, you were trying to hit it, but you just missed because you're human and you made a mistake. Okay? So every time a Baptist pastor tells you that the Ten Commandments are done away with, you ask him or her, is there such thing as sin in the New Testament? They'll say yes. Then there must be, by definition, a law. Because if there's a mark to miss, then naturally there must be a mark to... See? Law's not going anywhere. Just by the words themselves. And if the law is there, then guess which commandment is still valid? The Sabbath. Because when they say the law is done away with, they don't mean everything. They just mean... The Sabbath. And the reason why you see all the venom against the Sabbath and the Scriptures is because Lucifer wants worship. And Revelation 4 verse 11 says, You are worthy to receive worship because you have created, and by your will all things exist. So if I'm the devil, I'm going to put my bazooka on the day that shows that I don't have the authority to create, and therefore I'm not, I don't deserve the power to be worshipped. So I will blow up the Sabbath and so that everyone has an identity crisis and they won't know where they came from. We can say they came from monkeys and the process happens over a million years. 
which is not observable, right? It's not true science. And so the reason why you see all the venom about the Sabbath is because it is the day that shows that only Jesus deserves our worship. Okay? So back to this. So sin, iniquity, full rebellion, transgression, a mistake of the moment, and sin, lesser degree of that. God forgives all three. So today, if you are in iniquity, if you're in rebellion, if you're here and you don't even know why you're here, God forgives iniquity. If you're in transgression, you just made a mistake. Maybe you did one today or yesterday. God forgives transgression. Or if you just made a mistake, there's grace for that too. Amen? By no means clearing the guilty for visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, after all that happened, what did Moses have in his hands? Exodus 34 and verse 29. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony. What's that called? That's the Ten Commandments. Yeah, you got it. They were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face has shone. Because that's what happens when you spend time in God's presence. You shine, right? That's why every one of us need to be spending time in God's presence so that you're not dark. Amen. All right. So notice what happened. God says, hey, God, show me your glory. God says, okay, I'll put you in the cloth to the rock and I'll proclaim my name, then all my goodness. And when all that was done, what was Moses holding? So therefore, his name, his glory, and his goodness are all the Ten Commandments. Now you'll see this because in 1 Samuel chapter 4, what time is it? 2.54? How many slides have I got left? Six. Let's go. Okay. First Samuel. Go to First Samuel chapter four and verse twelve. First Samuel. We're not going to read the whole story because you probably already know what happened. There's just a little part of this that I want you to read. Go to First Samuel four verse nineteen. So Philistia is attacking um, God's people. Not sure if it was Judah or Israel at this point. My Old Testament Bible trivia isn't the best. But Philistia was attacking, I think it was Israel. And they captured what? Okay, who can tell me what's in the Ark of the Covenant? Three things. It was mostly the house for the Ten Commandments and then two other things. Aaron's rod and pot of manna, right? So the pot of manna represents God's providence. The Aaron's rod represents um, leadership. And the Ten Commandments represents his government. Okay, so here, 1 Samuel, what did I say, 4 and verse 19. Now his daughter, this is Eli, daughter, his daughter-in-law, Phineas, Phineas's wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God, see, the two boys were killed, no big deal. But when the ark of the covenant was captured, then we, have a, we fall backwards when that happens. Then we have a violent reaction when the Ark of the Covenant is captured. And that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, and she bowed herself to give birth for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of, about the time of her, her, her labor pain, verse 20, and about the time of her death, the women who stood by her side said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son, so that the boy is okay even though you feel terrible. But she did not answer, 
nor did she regard. Then she named the child what? Ichabod. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod. She named her son Ichabod, which means inglorious or no glory. Because the glory, then notice what she says. Then she named the child Ichabod. And what's the next phrase? The glory has departed from Israel. So the Ark of the Covenant had been captured. What was in the Ark of the Covenant? That's the glory. Okay? So the glory of God has been captured because the Ark of the Covenant was captured because the Ten Commandments were inside the Ark. That's why the glory has departed. And she named her son No Glory to commemorate that event. Does it make sense? Isn't Bible study fun? All right. I already said all that. Let's move forward. Okay, so here in Revelation chapter 7, we're, we're zeroing in on this giving glory stuff. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 1. Revelation 7 verse 1. Revelation 7 1, Revelation 7 1, are you there? Still hear a couple pages flipping. Pastors call that music. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east. Every time something comes from the east in Revelation, it's always from God. Having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a... Megaphone, okay? He cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our our God on their where? Foreheads, okay? Forehead, very important in the book of Revelation. Go to 14, verse 1. Revelation 14, verse 1. Revelation 14, verse 1. Revelation 14 and verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb, talking about Jesus, standing on Mount Zion and with him, 144,000, having his what? Father's name written where? Okay. In Revelation, you have... um, things being written on people's foreheads. In Revelation 17... Uh, you have in verse 5, mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots, is written on the harlot's forehead, right? And then here you have, you have uh, people's na- name, um, the beast's name, the mark of the beast is where? On the right hand and on the... Okay, and then here in chapter 14, verse 1, you have the father's name written on the forehead. The forehead represents conformity to the person whose name is written there. Okay, so the people who are following the beast, that's why the mark of the beast is on the forehead. It represents what you know. But then the people who do not follow the beast, 144,000, they have the Father's name written only on the forehead. The seal of God is also on the forehead. What else is written on the forehead? Go to Hebrews 8, verse 6. Turn left and go to Hebrews 8 and... I'm going to skip you to verse 10, Hebrews 8 and verse 10. 
what else was written on the forehead. Hebrews 8 and verse 10. Hebrews 8, 10. Pastor Torres always told us, make sure you repeat your verses three times, didn't he? Hebrews 8, verse 10. All right. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their wire. And their minds. Where do you suppose your mind is? In your elbow? Your foot? No. It's right here. It's your frontal lobe. 33% of your brain is frontal lobe. It's where you register morality and judgment. Okay? So he puts his laws in their mind and writes them on their hearts. In Hebrew poetry, the heart is the seat of the emotions. Right? So God writes his law on your heart so you love it and in your forehead so you know it. So you don't have to pull out no pocket Ten Commandments when you've done something wrong. The Spirit of the Lord pats you on the behind and says, hey, hey, you shouldn't have done that. But there's hope you can go to Jesus and He'll forgive your sin, right? So that's the kind of, that's the kind of guilt that is from God. The guilt that says, oh, I am such a bad person and I'm terrible and I go years and years feeling separated from God, that's the enemy. The Holy Spirit gives a kind of guilt that is uplifting and leads you to Jesus so that your burden can be taken away at the cross. Amen? All right. So what's written on the forehead? God's name, His character, and His law. They're all the exact same thing. Okay? They're all the exact same thing. So God's name is His glory. It's His character. It's His goodness. It's His seal or its law. Here's a few more. It's even true in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. This is the Shema. That Hebrew word in verse 4 is Shema. It means here. Okay? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your what? Does anybody know the context of Deuteronomy 6? What happened in, in uh, chapter 5? What was just repeated in chapter 5? It was the second version of the Ten Commandments, right? So these words that shall be upon your heart are the Ten Commandments in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 6. So make sure when you study verses, you got to know the context, okay? Because you just don't make a, a doctrine off of one verse and take off with it because you can get in real trouble. So in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the these words that should be upon your heart is the Ten Commandments. So Moses is here saying that the law of God should be in your heart and on your mind. Paul takes up this concept of the law being the glory in Romans 3 verse 23. And you read this verse many times and you'll think of it differently here. Romans 3.23, notice Paul's definition for sin. I know that Ellen White says that the transgression of the law is the only definition for sin in scriptures. I get it. Okay? But we understand that knowledge is progressive. And there are things that we understand today that the pioneers didn't understand then. For instance, many of the early pioneers taught that the mark of the beast was Sunday keeping. Period. And if you taught, if you worshiped on Sunday, you had the mark of the beast. James White used to teach that, and they learned through Bible study that the mark of the beast is a future issue. It's not a present day thing yet. So light is progressive. Knowledge is progressive. So we understand the 2300 days now because it's time to be understood as now, but in Daniel's time, he did not understand it. 
because it wasn't for his day. That's an example for the concept of progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. In other words, you read a text five years ago, but you read it yesterday, and you're like, whoa, I never saw that before. Progressive revelation. Watch this. For all have what? And fallen short of the? You see what he did? Now, 1 John 3, verse 4, King James is the best. Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is transgression of the? But here in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the? So for Paul, sin has fallen short of the glory, but for John, it's transgressing the law. So which one's right? Yes, that's, that's who's right. They're both right, because Paul had a different personality than John, and the Spirit gave them freedom to write with their own their own thoughts, right? So the Bible is uh, thought-inspired, not verbally inspired, because there's some places where there's just minor mistakes from the copyist, but that doesn't change the, the tenor of what the text was about. So for Paul, sin is falling short of the glory, but for John, sin is transgressing the law. Therefore, in the context of the first angel, giving him glory means to keep his, including the Bible Sabbath. Okay? So the everlasting gospel of Jesus goes to those who dwell upon the earth, the wicked. Then they stop fearing whatever it is that they used to fear. They now love God, and then loving God gives way to giving Him glory. And if you love me, keep my commandments. John is rephrasing his earlier statement in a different way in Revelation chapter 14. So we can see the natural progression of the plan of salvation here. The gospel of Jesus is preached, which leads to fear or total surrender to God. Used to fear something else, now you fear the Lord. Fearing or reverencing God is the result of accepting the everlasting gospel, which is justification. You used to be a sinner, you've done a whole bunch of bad things, sinned your whole life, God removes all of that at, re- at confession and repentance and slate wiped clean, gone, everything. That's called justification. It's the work of an instant. But then the, that process leads to a process which is the work of a lifetime. It's, keeping, it's, it's uh, giving Him glory. Giving God glory is the result of fearing Him and sanctification is the result of justification. Giving God glory or keeping His law is the result of fearing God. So now we're starting to understand what the everlasting gospel is. It's not just preaching about Jesus and He's your friendly uncle and wink at your sins and wipe everything. No. Fearing God, we love God, and there is a concept, oh, just love Jesus, love God, everything is all love and love, love, love. Sounds like a Beatles song, doesn't it? All you need to do is love. But that's not the whole everlasting gospel. Loving God leads to giving Him glory, which we now know is keeping His commandments, including the seventh-day Sabbath. So the gospel is the everlasting gospel is both loving God, which leads to obedience to His law. But the thing is, you cannot just say, I'm going to keep God's law, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. That's not, that's not how you keep God's law, right? 
The text says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But there is no good thing that dwells in my flesh. So how is it possible that I can keep the seventh day holy if I am unholy? Wait a minute, didn't Jesus say, um, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will send you the, the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, and He'll be with you and in you. Maybe that's how we keep God's law. Maybe it's not by our strength. Maybe it's not by our effort, but by the divine Holy Spirit, which is the third person of the Godhead. That, friends, is righteousness by faith. The everlasting gospel is righteousness by faith. Okay? So then we see the gospel goes out. That leads to people stop fearing what they used to. Now they fear God, and the result of fearing God is giving God glory. And then the very next thing, very last slide from this presentation, next thing we see, and he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. And here's the reason. Because the hour of his judgment, you're going to get a new look at the judgment as we go along in this. Because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea of the springs of water. And I don't deal with that last phrase that much in this seminar. So I'll just tell you that the angel is saying, worship him who made. And he says, worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Does anybody know where that phrase is taken from? Revelation has four, write this down. Revelation has 404 verses. How many? 404 verses. 276 of them are direct quotes from the Old Testament. There is a whole line of scholarship that studies how prophets cite the works of other prophets. It's called intertextual criticism. And it's awesome. Here, John is quoting from the Septuagint version of Exodus 20, verse 11. He says, Hey world, hey church, you have a God who's a creator. Worship him as the creator. Well, how do we worship him as a creator? Which passage is he quoting? He's quoting the Sabbath commandment. So the way that we worship God as creator is keeping the seventh day Sabbath holy through the Spirit's power. Apparently the Sabbath is still there. Amen? So hopefully your confidence in what you believe is rising higher and higher. Because I'll be honest with you, every once in a while, I'm tempted with atheistic thoughts. Every once in a while, somebody asks me a question and I'm kind of nervous that I might not know the answer. But it's like this. Either we have the truth or we don't. And when you have the truth and you know it, you can be fearless. Fearless. So I'm not afraid of questions because that motivates me to study something and know it a little and know a little deeper. And so knowledge is power, right? Knowledge is power. And when you know stuff, you rest in the message and you settle it in your heart and in your mind that this is God's last day remnant church and it's either this or I'm a total secular person. When I was at Mission College, I'll tell you this quick story. When I was at Mission College, one of the students asked Pastor Torres, did y'all know Pastor Torres? He literally trained everybody. He did. <laughs> Lots of pastors in this conference are here. Larry, uh, Larry's here because of Pastor Torres. So, yes? you all, Okay, so Pastor Torres has kids all over this world. Somebody asked Pastor when I was at the, at the four-month program at Mission College, Pastor, what would you be if you weren't and she was asking Methodist, Pentecostal, Baptist, Pastor, what would you be if you weren't a Seventh-day Adventist? And without even thinking, ashamed of myself. 
Just like that. Just like that. That's what he said. Okay, so tomorrow, first angel. Wednesday, second angel. Thursday, third angel. Friday, the rise of the bishops. Don't let a tornado keep you from this room. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the joy of discovery. Thank you for the joy of your word. We're so happy that we're all here. And we ask that you would continue to bless as we go to our next seminar. Inspire us and teach us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.